Welcome to the Polari Podcast with me, Sophia Blackwell. And me, Paul Burston. And tonight we're going to be talking about one of our most recent live shows, one of Paul's most recent live shows, which took place at Heaven Night Club under the Arches in London. This was our second event at Heaven this year. The first one was wonderfully cathartic, and this one, to announce the shortlist for this year's Polari Prizes, was also very inspiring and a bit naughty as well. Paul, how did you enjoy this one? (laughs) Well, I like naughty, so I enjoyed it hugely. (laughs) A woman I'm friends with on Twitter messaged me and said she was thinking of bringing her teenage daughter and what was the rules for heaven in terms of the the, the age requirements and things. So I checked with the venue about, oh, it was over 14, if it kept their company by an adult, etc, etc. Didn't think in my, at all in my head about the content of the show. <laughs> and... and um, and to be honest with you, I wasn't expecting it to be quite so quite so saucy as it was, and I was suddenly very very conscious of it. Conscious that there was this woman in the audience with her with her young teenage daughter. They were fine. There's always something when you're organising events, isn't it? You know, you go on the the information that you have, but everybody was just into you know, hooray, we've got out of the house. Let's get a bit wild. I think tonight we've got a wonderful lineup for you. I'm going to be announcing this year's shortlists. To kick us off, we've got our current Polari Prize winner. Kate Davis studied English at Oxford University before becoming a writer and editor of children's books. She's now a full-time novelist and screenwriter. In at the Deep End is her first adult novel, and I do mean adult. (laughs) It won the 2020 Polari Prize for non-debuts. Please welcome the wonderful Kate Davis. Both, she said. Or you could buy several. I'm a junior civil servant, I pointed out. 
buying one massive latex penis is a luxury as it is. It's not a luxury, she told me. It's a lesbian essential. Once you're properly seeing someone, you'll come back and pick one out together. So think of this as your fallback cock, my emergency cock, exactly. A shop assistant wandered up to us. Can I help you? Not sure, I said. Just looking, really. Have you bought a cock before? She hasn't, Ella said, before I could answer. She nodded. Are you into, like, girth or, like, length? I wasn't sure, to be honest. I was used to taking what I was given when it came to cocks. Having to choose my own felt like picking out a personality for myself. I rolled out the massive black ones as they seemed like the equivalent of a Ferrari, promising too much up front. I also ruled out the thin, glittery fingers because, I mean, really, what was the point? I like girth, I think, I said, but I was thinking of something quite all-purpose. Got it, said the sales assistant. She reached up to a high shelf and took down a medium-sized dildo with ridges along its length. This one's good for beginners, she said. A bit like someone at a pharmacy saying, good condoms for virgins, those. Slightly embarrassing. That looks great, I said, reaching for it. Just wanting to get out of there. Room for your pleasure, she said as she handed it over. Lovely. Easy to aim if you know what I mean, Gwen. I walked over to the till, but the shop assistant didn't follow. You'll need a harness too, she said, running her fingers over the display. Leather is more traditional, or you could try the underpants. They're easier to get on and off, but they're, they're not as sexy. She picked up what looked like a pair of Y fronts with a hole in them and stretched them to demonstrate their elasticity. The stretchy pants are easier, Ella said. Don't get them, said the shop assistant. You need a real harness. It's part of the ritual. Ella laughed. Yeah, the ritual of having to stop in the middle of foreplay to strap yourself into a medieval torture device and then you realise you put your leg in the bum hole and then you have to take it off again except you're stuck and whoever you're having sex with has to help you get out of it and the moment's totally gone. You get used to it, said the shop assistant, if you do it often enough. Ella rolled her eyes. Try on a harness then, she said. The shop assistant tossed me one. Working out how to put on the harness was like doing Kinky Cat's Cradle. I stepped into one of the holes, but Ella was right. It turned out to be the wrong one. She had to help me figure out how to put it on. She pulled on the straps to tighten it. Now you put the cock in, said the soft shop assistant, handing it to me. I pushed it through the cock ring, and there it was, standing up proudly in front of me, ready to pleasure the ladies. I felt completely ridiculous. I'm telling you, Ella said, pants are much easier, but much less sexy, said the shop assistant. I bought the leather harness. One of the readings that I particularly enjoyed, and it was actually only his third live reading since the book was published by Dialogue Books in spring 2020, was Paul Mendes reading from Rainbow Milk. Uh, I was quite surprised that Paul actually recognised me when we entered the venue because we had only actually met on Zoom. He and I had been meant to do a live event together for the publication of his book, but obviously that didn't happen and then became a radio thing. Uh, but it was really lovely to see him actually read from Rainbow Milk. Um, I imagine that you enjoyed reading this very original book as much as I did. I think, I think it's an extraordinarily good book. For a debut novel, it's so assured and confident and it has an amazing voice. You never know when you book people. Well, you, well you, of course, sometimes you do know, but you don't always know when you book people how well they're going to be able to communicate what's on the page as a spoken word performance. And I thought he was incredibly good i mean he just he just completely embodied the the characters and the voices i mean that the voice was fantastic that the the authorial voice he had the audience in the palm of his hand people were people were laughing and you know really getting into it it was great i mean obviously when i'm when i'm when i'm physically there hosting it i'm sort of half 
paying attention to that action, half getting ready for the next one and sort of checking the notes and checking where people are um, and, and also checking that the tech is, is going to plan. So I'm not completely absorbed. I'm sort of, I mean, I'm in two places really, but I was really swept up in his performance. I thought it was fantastic. And I, I wasn't aware that it was only his third time reading in public. I mean, that's extraordinary. <laughs> Damn, why must these young people be so talented at everything? <laughs> Okay, next up this evening, Paul Mendes, the London-based novelist, essayist and screenwriter. Born in 1982 and raised over witness in the black country, he disassociated himself from witnesses whilst a teenager. In 2020, Dialogue Books published Rainbow Milk, which featured in the Observer's prestigious top 10 debut novels list and was shortlisted for the Gordon Byrne Prize. It's also longlisted for the Polari First Book Prize. Please welcome Paul Mendes. Good evening. Hello. Um, this is the third live audience I've ever had. So, as Paul said, I'm the author of Rainbow Milk, um, which came out uh, last April at the beginning of the pandemic, which was great. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks to my publisher, um, its fan readers, and yeah, great feedback, and I've really enjoyed the last year somehow. So, um, I'm going to read, well, just by way of introduction, um, so Rainbow Milk is a semi-autobiographical, and I will let you judge how semi and how autobiographical. <laughs> Novel about a young man from a Jehovah's Witness community in the West Midlands, the black country. Um, he's from a Jamaican background, and he is disfellowshipped from his community when they find out he's gay. Um, he moves to London and becomes a sex worker. Um, so I'm going to read from sort of about a quarter of the way in, into the book. Um, at this point, he has been disfellowshipped. It's May 2002, um, and he's at Birmingham train station, having just left home. Jess's alarm went off at seven, but he'd barely slept. He was excited, if nervous. He'd been scared of London all his life, but was a man now, and after a few months saving up, he was ready to do it. He'd found a hostel on the internet in Earl's Court for £12 a night. He had £300 in his bank account and had no responsibilities to anyone. He packed only what he absolutely needed, his best clothes, some underwear, 10 or so CDs, his discman, the James Baldwin novel, Another Country. He left his key and his Bible on his pillow. The Bible was supposed to have an answer for everything, but did not have guidance for sons whose families had betrayed them and turned them out. He wanted to tuck its ribbon at a verse that would show his parents what they'd done. The New World translations, fathers do not be irritating your children, did not go far enough and he eventually decided he didn't want to waste any more time inside a book that had made him literate, but told him everything he did and stood for was wrong. He stared at it, closed, leather-bound and gold-leaf trimmed, for an indecisive moment before he ran downstairs and out of the front door without leaving a note. He ran until he turned the corner. His mother wouldn't have been quick enough out of the bed to see which direction. He'd gone in. Perhaps, actually, she was sleeping easy. 
He'd been to the car phone warehouse to change his phone number again. He intended it to be a dramatic disappearance that would leave even his McDonald's colleagues wondering where he'd gone. He pounded through the estate, already forgetting the scruffy, dark brick, semi-detached houses with mattresses and wheelless cars on their driveways that kids who went to school with, or householders who'd accepted his Jehovah's Witness literature lived in, and caught the 74 from Swan Village bound for Birmingham. He looked out of the window but saw nothing. There were clock towers and fancy buildings in London, much greater than these, he thought. He didn't care if he never saw this part of the world again. Birmingham was big. It had tall buildings and busy roads, a national train station and a shopping centre with all the top brands. Though he'd grown up with a Birmingham postcode, he hadn't visited the city centre that often. Usually, when he was a kid, shopping with his mother and aunt, waiting around hungrily, thirstily, needily while they tried on a hundred dresses, jeans, coats, boots, coming home a little fatter and frustrated, having been all the way on the bus and bought only a Kentucky family bucket, leaving him the boniest bits, which had the crispiest, but tastiest, best seasoned crumb. But Birmingham was not his destination. It wasn't far away enough. He'd only been to London twice, on the witness trip to the British Museum, but he knew it was for him. He knew from the length of the coach journey, the size of the place, the variety in every direction he looked. He saw black girls with long braids, African women in wrappers, young punks and old dandies, city men with their briefcases, model-like white girls with cute little dogs, feminine-looking men walking outrageously, frighteningly, hand-in-hand, black boys wearing trainers that weren't for sale anywhere in the Midlands. Maybe now he could go to college, after all. He felt it a shame that his disfellowshipping happened just weeks too late for that academic year. There was so much he could put right now. He wished he hadn't listened to Sister Doreen Charles, whom he'd treated as an elder, an authority, even though she was a woman, and women weren't allowed to be considered elders or authorities. He could still hear her words. No matter what college when you can preach the good news of God's kingdom from house to house, hand to da, serving the need of the congregation. If me did your age and a man, that what me would do? What you need from your education other than to read good and write and count and praise Jehovah? If you could get everlasting life and look up at the star and understand all them things about the universe and that, council flat them carrying for 50 pounds a month. So why don't you join your daddy panda rubbish tip? For God himself, I go sustain you with everything you're going to need. We in the last day, you no, know, sir. Me bet you don't reach 21 for how I get an app when you're fast asleep in your bed. Nobody go to college. Jehovah him want you. At New Street Station, he balked at the cost of a train ticket, but the attendant explained it would be cheaper if he waited until 10 o'clock when Super Off Peak kicked in. So he bought himself a McDonald's breakfast with a cup of coffee and ate it on a bench to the sound of constant tannoy denouncements. He went into WH Smith and bought a London A to Z and a large pack of Duracell AA size batteries for his dismount, as well as the face 
with Eminem on the cover, wearing a pink vest and lip balm, looking quite gay. There was an article in it about the Sugar Babes and their new member. He'd already bought their new single, Freak Like Me, hoping it was going to number one, and had been listening on repeat, on repeat to the We Don't Give a Damn mix, a mashup between Adina Howard's lewd Freak Like Me and Gary Newman's dystopian Our Friends Electric, sung by three girls who could have been his school friends. There were men everywhere. One of the writers who appeared at the event, but is actually writing from a perspective outside the UK, specifically focusing on the lives of queer people in Iran, is uh, Golnish Noor. And I loved Golnish's collection, The Ministry of Guidance, which is out now from Muswell Press. When she first mentioned it to me, I remember mishearing the title, because we were in a club at the time, and she said, you know, The Ministry of Guidance, and I misheard it as The Mystery of Gardens, so I always think of it as, as being that title, which it's not. Mystery of Lady Gardens, absolutely. Is it too late to do a reprint? We may never know. <laughs> but I thought it was terrific. It's so rare that you get to read these stories, and I found that they had some of the best of, you know, some quite classic Western storytelling techniques, but also a glimpse into a world that we don't necessarily think about. Absolutely. And, and you know, I mean, she's she's a very, very um, assured writer, and she's very, very observational, and... I was aware of her already from, from from other projects. It isn't her first book, obviously. Um, but I'd never seen, I'd never met her. I didn't, I didn't know what she was like in person, and I'd not seen her perform. Um, and I just heard very good things from other people. And um, it was one of, it was a book that was very popular with the judges. I knew that already from the from the long list. And um, she turned up at Heaven in the afternoon with her partner, and she was very very sweet and quite shy. And um, sort of a little bit nervous about the performance, and then she she got on stage and she was fantastic. I mean, I thought she was fantastic because also she's you know, she's 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 a very um, physically sort of small you know person, and she became this really big person on stage. She just commanded it, and the choice she had these wonderful images that she selected behind her for each of the. She did six short readings, and she chose these an, an image for each of them that in some way captured the mood of them. And they were beautiful to look at as well. I mean, her, her choice of images was really powerful as well. So I think I think it was a terrific um, representation of the book and the diversity of the book. So it gave, it gave a little glimpses into different, different stories. Um, it's a real kind of, um, what's the word? Um, like a collage. It felt like a collage. There was like diff- different details you could zoom in on. But there's, an, but there's an overall impression as well that it gives you as a collection. It has this very powerful identity as a collection. But each of the individual stories explores in, you know, obviously very specific characters. Um, but it all comes together as a piece really well, which isn't always the case in short story collections. Some short story collections, you know, they go off in all different directions, which is fine. Um, nothing, nothing wrong with that. It's just there are some that really kind of come together as a, as a collection. I, I think this is one. And I, I used to write poetry. I was never very good, but I used to write poetry for a long time when I was young. When I look at my early, my early drafts of fiction, you can tell that I'd been writing poetry because you, you do approach prose with a different mentality because you're, you're very conscious of, about ec- ec- economy and about having just the right word for things. Which, as a poet, you're, very, you're, you're also the rhythm of things. You become very conscious about the rhythm and the sound because poetry 
like 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 song lyrics or like song you know there's 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 a rhythm to it um i'm 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 very much about the the beat and the the rhythm and yeah. quite a lot of other poets who you'd think of as page poets for example roddy lumsden who was one of my tutors and andrew mcmillan for example are very very good have been historically very good at talking about the beat but i think songs i know i know songs are also very important to to Gonouche because um she was also a, a host on soho radio and there are song lyrics in in this book as well for example we spoke about and i played the song by by placebo um, when I was interviewing her on one of my very first shows and unfortunately the sound quality when I was speaking to her was very bad and I have improved since then but one of the tracks that I chose was the placebo song song to say goodbye which is quoted in the book is the line you are one of God's mistakes which is quite central to one of the stories and I think as queer people sometimes we we have been made to feel that and Brian Molko is such an important figure for me, I mean, not quite my David Bowie, but I do remember seeing him on top of the pops and just thinking, ah, quite quite fancy him. What's that about? <laughs> he was very beautiful when they first appeared. Please welcome Gonouche. Hello. Hi. Um, I'm just going to read uh, from my short story collection, which contains 13 short s- stories. Um, I'm going to read from five of them, and all you need to know in order to be able to follow is that this is a book that's meant to represent Iranian queers, but with a massive focus on homosexuality and homosexual acts practiced by Iranians mainly within Iran, because I was very triggered when our former president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, said there are no homosexuals in Iran when he was asked at Columbia University why the regime executes homosexuals. The first story I would like to read from is obviously a very lesbian short story. and, And all you need to know, I'm going to read from a section from the middle, is that these women are supposed to be mourning uh, the martyrdom of one of our ancient imams. They're not doing that, as you will see. Hasti and Mina were walking in a narrow corridor with orange wallpaper, hand in hand. Hasti a few steps ahead, leading Mina. Mina's nostrils were on Hasti's nape, sniffing its strange scent which Mina concluded smelled like her dead mother, a mixture of cigarette smoke and spicy cologne, resulting in a scent of burnt trees, which she relished. She sensed her next painting would be a forest on fire. She knew Hasti was taking her to Omi's bedroom at the end of the long corridor. Suddenly, she felt in love with the existence of this corridor, which connected Omi's living room to his bedroom, separating her and Hasti from the rest of the party. It was indeed the best thing that could exist in a house and probably in the world. However, the time was not the best time. Mina noticed a black clock with golden numbers hanging on the wall of the corridor, showing the quarter past one. She thought of her father and heard the sound of the wailing of Omid's neighbors at a higher volume than when they were in the living room. It was probably because there was no music in the corridor, and yet Hasti's movements and presence were the most powerful piece of music. 
Hasti didn't say anything, just pushed her into Omid's bedroom, the promised land. The room was dark and quiet. Mina noticed neighbors had finally stopped wailing. But for a moment she wished they had not stopped, as the silence was even more suffocating. She opened the curtains and the light of the night poured into the dark room. The moon was full and Mina felt insecure. Hasti pushed her onto the bed. Mina pushed her back. I need to tell you something, murmured Mina. What, you want to know my surname? Hasti let out a nervous laugh at her own joke, which Mina found too crude, almost cruel. No, no, Mina retorted while Hasti was undressing. The red dress was gone in a moment, thrown to the floor. Mina found herself touching Hasti's breasts with the tip of her trembling fingers. Hasti grabbed her hand and stopped her. What, you're not on your period, are you? No, thank God. But, Mina paused and gazed into Hasti's eyes in the dark. Hasti put her arms around her with force. But what, you're killing me. Um, I'm going to stop there so you're encouraged to read the whole story. clap between <laughs> all the readings because I'm going to read quite a few. Um, the next story I'm now going to read from the third story in the collection. It's called Caspian and I'm also going to read a section from the middle. And it's also a story third person from the point of view of a religious teenage girl who is about to find out that her beloved brother is gay. It was eight and the sea was getting dark. The bright side is there are no tacky Ulmol people in the sea now. Her brother's voice echoed in her brain. Did Muhammad find her tacky and Ulmol with her chest hijab, prayers, fat face and small eyes? She saw Armin and Muhammad from afar. She saw Armin in Muhammad's thin yet powerful arms. They were jumping and laughing in the wavy sea. There was no, no, one, no one else around, no almost tacky people. The air was humid. She stood worrying about, she didn't even know exactly what. Muhammad's back was to her. They wouldn't even think about her. She was irrelevant and almost with her hijab, prayers, studies, godly goals, chastity and lack of knowledge of music and French and Sada Halayat. Standing on the beach in her tight headscarf, she couldn't even hear them, but she could see their laughter, their joy. Then she finally saw. She saw her brother biting Armin's neck while rising and falling with the waves. Except that Muhammad didn't look like her brother any longer. He looked like a violent animal preying on male flesh. She saw Armin swiftly kissing her brother's parted lips. The kiss must stay salty and polluted like the Caspian Sea. She hadn't seen anything like this. Even in the Hollywood movies, her classmates convinced her to watch under the pretext of improving her English. There was always a bulky brunette man making love to a bony blonde woman. Never two men kissing. Two men beautiful and as dark as Armin and Mohammed.
the narrator is basically just me. I'm going to be honest about that. But it's been categorized as fiction, so whatever. Um, it's called Transit. The Ukrainian waiter is shouting at me in bad English that my bacon sandwich contains bacon. You sure you want it? No, hello. I feel like answering his idiotic question with another idiotic one. Why do you assume I am Muslim and don't eat bacon? Does my fiery red v-neck shirt and looks her look like hijab to you? And then I remember it is my dark features. No matter how much skin and hair I put on display, in the eyes of the airport staff, I will always be one thing, a Muslim. I hungrily look around at other customers who are all talking in loud Ukrainian, chuckling with the waiters who are suddenly very welcoming. They are all white. The women are skinny and have long blonde hair. The men are sturdy and have bald heads. The women who push prams look both furious and frustrated. The men all look the same, expressionless. I find most of the boys to be terribly beautiful. They are tall and have large blue eyes, their smooth skin radiating youth, but their belligerent manners ruin it all. My harem sandwich arrives after half an hour and I assume the waiters have taken turns to spit on my Muslim bacon. Turns out they haven't. In fact, I realize this is the most delicious sandwich I have ever eaten. The bacon tastes so fresh, it melts in my mouth. And for those few seconds that my sandwich lasts, I forget how exhausted I am, and I forget about the xenophobic episode. I catch the eye of the waiter, but I avoid leaving any tips. Also, I conclude the sausage sandwiches my dad made me for school were even better than the one I just had. Because they were elaborate, everything was planned and loved before being put inside the baguette. And the mayonnaise was homemade. My dad makes mayonnaise with organic eggs and vinegar and oil. It takes him ages and the whole family is deafened by the cacophony of his blender. But it is the only mayonnaise I like and ever eat. I decide the constant trips to Tehran, which are messing up my body and mind, are worth it. Thank you so much. God news, everyone. So as part of this episode, we're also going to be hearing a bit from Kevin Maxwell, who you spoke about with the memoir Forced Out, which is on one of the shortlists. Can you tell me a little bit more about that book? It's a memoir about his experiences working as a out gay police detective in the Met. It's a very, I don't want to give too much away because it's a, it's, a very, it's a very, very, I wouldn't say enjoyable because it's quite a kind of tough story. And it, some of his experiences are pretty harrowing and upsetting to read about but I think when somebody when when somebody can channel those experiences and those sort of hurts and those injustices into a really good narrative it it becomes a kind of cathartic I'm I'm sure it was a cathartic um, experience for him writing it but it has it 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 is a it is it's a very defiant book it's he shows enormous strength of character in it and it sort of explores, again, lots of things that are the discussions that are happening already. I mean, there's been ongoing discussions around racism in the police force, um, you know, which has been highlighted over the last few years, obviously. And much, much more so in America than here, but obviously it's happening here too. And these are discussions that we need to have here. 
I think his voice is an important one. The fact the fact that he felt he wasn't able to continue working as a detective for for, for all these reasons speaks volumes on, on you know in itself. And he's a very eloquent he speaks very eloquently about his experience. He speaks very he speaks truth to power very eloquently, and I think that's the important thing. I don't really like talking actually, I don't really drink that much for a lot of pints over certain words. That's genuine, you know why. Um, I decided to take some snippets from the reading rather than just bore you, you know, reading page after page. Um, some of it's uh, prior to the police, some of it's about the police and while serving, and some of it's afterwards. So, just to give you a flavour of the book and, you know, and my story, this particular story, chapter of my life. On a summer's afternoon, I fell ill and collapsed at Heathrow Airport. At the time, I was working as a detective in the Counter-Terrorism Command at London's Metropolitan Police, having transferred as a detective from the Criminal Investigation Department at Greater Manchester Police. Afterwards, my life and how I saw the world around me changed. I began to think about how the culture in policing impacted communities when it came to crime and terrorism and the effect prejudice and discrimination had on staff. I was forced to speak out but it came with devastating consequences. That's like the opening to the book. And then I um, go into my journey as a gay brown boy in inner city Liverpool. I'm the last of 11 children, by the way, from a Catholic family, so I can imagine how tough that was. <laughs> Just a hand-me-down, so far enough. Um, my older brothers shaped my understanding of masculinity, but I also knew I was different to them. I was keener on playing doctors and doctors than doctors and nurses. I saw my brothers and their friends with girls, but I was more interested in the boys on my estate. I sensed that my mum knew I was different too, but she never made a fuss about it. I was encouraged to be myself and experiment, even trying on my sister's makeup, often. <laughs> I was never told to stop acting in a certain way, nor forced to play with boys' toys. I was the second of mum's children to be gay. One of my older sisters had come out as a lesbian and her sexuality caused her much pain and suffering. Mum was determined that I shouldn't feel the same anguish and so I grew up knowing only acceptance of my sexuality. That's when my years of dating as a gay man began. I got my heart broken pretty early on. Then I went on today to die on my course whilst at university went into his relationship with his girlfriend to be with me. But he wanted to pretend that we were just friends. And whilst we were on holiday together in Cavos, he said he had to go with girls for cover. I was so devastated that I travelled to the pool to see my mum. Devastated because whilst we were on holiday, he was copping up with every girl just to prove our points. He broke my little heart. The more some bit is coming out. <laughs> so I get home to Liverpool. Uh, Mum was in her bedroom when I arrived. Tears running down my face. Immediately concerned, she sat up. I froze. I hadn't come out to her yet. Only my university friends knew the truth. I said I couldn't tell her because she would disown me. I couldn't risk having the most beautiful person I'd known reject my sexuality and throw me out of her house. Don't be silly, she said, but I couldn't do it, I was too afraid. Mum got on the phone to one of my sisters in London and told her that something was up with me, but that I wouldn't tell her what. 
She handed the phone to me. Blunt as usual, my sister said, you're upset mum, tell her what's up. And so I burst out. I'm gay. It was out. Is that it? Mum said. She hung up the phone on my sister, wiped my tears and kissed me. She dug around in her purse and pulled out a £20 note and a £10 note. I thought you were dying or had killed someone. You're my son, my baby. Now take this money and get on the coach to Manchester. Go have a drink on me to celebrate with your gay friends. I didn't have to pack my bags. I wasn't being thrown out. With a huge weight lifted off my shoulders, I washed my face in the bathroom and then set out on the coach to Manchester. As I sped down the motorway, I cried tears of laughter and joy. I couldn't believe it. I was out. And £30 went a long way back then. <laughs> now I've joined the police. One day, having had enough of this sergeant and hearing yet another comment about those queers in the writing room, I found my patrol inspector in the station corridor and came out to him, then and there. I'm gay, I said. Without missing a beat, he replied, as a Christian, I cannot condone what you do, but as long as you're a good police officer, that is all that matters. After that, I was moved to police stations. I arrived at the station's front desk with my uniform and equipment and was sent to see the subdivisional commander who held the rank of superintendent. The first thing he asked me in front of his deputy, the chief inspector, had he come to my station on a crusade waving a gay and black flag. On another night after work, a group of us went to the local nightclub 42nd Street in Manchester, which is on the same road as a police station. I went to join a certain of my colleagues just in time to hear one of the male officers announce, if a gay guy ever tried to hit on him, he would break his nose. His words were meant for me. It was an observation he felt it was important to hear once I joined the group. This officer had tested me previously in front of my colleagues by asking me if I liked women. My brain shouted, so just because I'm gay, I'm attracted to you. But again, I kept my mouth shut. He carried on, saying he didn't think what gay people did was natural. I held my tongue, smiled and drank my drink. Maybe he was scared that gay men would treat him like he treated women. And then this is where I go into, it was lonely for me as a black gay guy in the police, but I equally felt it lonely in the gay community, particularly inside the police. They people themselves knowing um, oppression. It was lonely living inside this world, and I never found any gay allies. The majority of gay officers I knew were working in offices, away from operational colleagues and their extreme views. Prior to 2003, the police were at war with the gay community. Over 30 gay men were murdered between 1986 and 1990, but the police did nothing or little about it, despite concerns from the community. The Sexual Offences Act 1967 saw the partial decriminalisation of male homosexuality, the consensual sex between men over 31 in private, but afterwards gay men were targeted more than before. Under, under the homophobic laws concerning gross indecency and buggery until May 2004, 
when the Sexual Offences Act 2003 replaced them. I joined the police two years prior to the repeal of the law, so I was one of those officers who was directed to target people just like me um, down the canals in Manchester. We're also going to be returning to an interview that you actually did earlier in the year with Mossin Zaidi. And we had Mossin talking with Fiona Mosley and another writer earlier in the year about queer spaces and the loss of them, which I then also used on a radio programme, which was specifically about spaces for gay men, followed by one that was international and talked about spaces for gay women. I have not yet read all of Mossin's book, but I loved the extract that he read on the Polari online show earlier in the year when we were unable to get out of the house. It may even have been the year before. I know it happened sometime either last winter or early in 2021. And he was describing the journey to his parents' house on the tube and the parts of him that kind of fall away on that the way to that part of London, sort of between London and Essex, where he goes to see them. And as you were saying, m- memoirs tell us about our own lives, but obviously we are not all top lawyers from Orthodox Muslim backgrounds who are about to tell our parents that, that we're gay. Um, you know, we can learn a lot, but I found it a great privilege to be able to get a view into into what somebody like Mossen's life is like. I think I think the great thing about that book and what what it really reminds us of is that if you if you can describe your your individual experience um, in a way which is authentic and doesn't shy away from any of the uncomfortable truths, I think that will resonate beyond your specific experience. It becomes it becomes people will find a universality in it. And it's about, we may not have experienced exactly what he lived, but we've experienced something of those emotional responses that he, that he has to what he lived. So as, as readers and as listeners, we identify with it to some degree. And I think, you know, very few, I, 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 I certainly have a very strong identification with that feeling of being on a train or being on a, you know, a tube or, or, or a train and, your sense of identity changing as the journey goes on. I think I, I completely get that. I mean, I, I, I used to have that coming from South Wales up to London where I was living a d- double life because I wasn't out to my family. And I would be on the train coming back to London and feeding myself, feeding myself, becoming myself again. And conversely, when I was taking the train d- back to Wales to visit my family, I would feel myself sort of regressing back to who I was before I'd left home. I think we all do that to some, even, you know, everyone does that to some degree, don't they? We all do that to some extent, but it is interesting when you are, as you say, living a a double life. Um, So it's that mixture of the usual regression that you experience that, you know, for example, straight people can document as well. If you look at something like Friday Night Dinner, it's all about how we turn back into kids when we hang out with our parents. And they turn into kids when they're with their parents as well, which is hilarious and, you know, really interesting to watch. So that's derogate for everyone but when you're keeping a secret or when you are someone different in the other space then it does feel more pronounced and I think that's that sense of not always being at home or like definitely not staying where you were brought up I just don't think I don't think queer people just do that they they often don't think well I'm just going to stay here it's usually more likely that, that we will go that we will experience some sort of exile. Let's go over to Mossin now and a dutiful boy um, can you tell us a bit about about the book and give us a bit of a taste of it, please? It is uh, a memoir about growing up in East London um, in a very uh, strict kind of Muslim sect. Um, to give you a flavour, the, the book opens with my dad 
beating himself with blades. So it was quite a relig- very religious family. I uh, became the first person from my school to, to, to go to Oxford, where I read law. And then at Oxford, I, I came out as gay. And then eventually I told my parents. And so the journey that the, I guess the, the main theme of the book is, is the, the, con- the, the, the apparent contradiction between my faith and my sexuality. But it, it goes beyond that because there are so many other worlds in which I was learning to exist. So I, I, was, um, I grew up in a predominantly Pakistani neighbourhood. I don't remember having any white friends really growing up, not through choice, but just because everybody was Pakistani. And I remember going to Oxford and being, for the most part, the only non-white person in the room. Um, And then similarly, um, it was about class. So, for example, I I had no idea that not everybody had a student loan and I'd never heard of Eton or Harrow. And so those are some of the things that I write about. So it's a book about family love because where I end up is writing about uh, coming out to my parents and what that's like um, and how they react um, and just how much uh, work I have to do to get them to a point where they might be able to accept me for, for who I am. It's it's a very, very, very moving and very big-hearted book. You write about family tensions and the conflict that you go through with them very, very um generously i think because you 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 let the reader see all the different sides of where people are coming from and 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 why how difficult was it to to relive and write about those experiences was it quite hard it really depended it depended on the day and it depended on what i was writing about because some some of the experiences were it was good to relive them because by reliving them i kind of confronted them and i felt really proud of the younger me for being able to go through that. Like one of the things I write about is um, a witch doctor coming to the house to try and cure me. I was angry at my dad. I was angry at this random guy who was pretending to be a doctor, but I knew that rage was not going to win whatever this battle was. So one of the things I write about was our house being petrol bombed um, in a racist attack when when I was about 18. Um, And I remember sitting there writing and I had tears coming down my face because what, what we did collectively was suppress it. It happened and we moved out of the house. We moved away from the area and we kind of never really spoke about it again. And it was only when I came to, to write about it that I just thought about how really how serious that was. What message that sent to an 18 year old non-white person about their role in this society and how that stayed with me for such a long time. Um, but I never, I never addressed it. So I guess it was a mixture of those things. This year, the two six-book shortlists for both of the 2021 Polari Prizes are dominated by books that explore the meeting points of class, race and sexuality. And they touch on some of the themes we've been talking about as part of tonight's show, as well as including some of the authors. So, who are the authors on this year's shortlists? Well, let's get back to heaven and find out. And please welcome to the stage to tell us about the shortlists, Kate and Keith. We're going to go with Keith first. The Pallavi First Book Prize is awarded annually to a first book which explores the LGBTQ plus experience. Now in its 11th year, the prize is kindly sponsored by FMCM Associates. I can speak for all of the judges, I believe, in saying that we were just blown away by the refreshing breadth and scope as well as the form 
of all of the long-listed books, um, which are, um, as you can see, uh, Manatomy by James McDermott, A Dutiful Boy by Mosin Saidi, Women Don't Are You Pretty by Florence Gibbon, Eat Gay Love, yeah, you can clap for all, you can cheer for all of them. Um, Eat Gay Love um, by Callum McSwiggan, um, Forced Out by Kevin Maxwell, Swimming in the Dark by Thomas Hedrowski, uh, One of Them by Michael Cashman, Rainbow Milk by Paul Mendes, Shuggy Bane by Douglas Stewart, In Their Shoes by Jamie Williams, Chard by Andrina, uh, and, ooh, Andrina Leanne, and Strange Fruit by Jason Ford. Again, like massive, um, just these books are all insightful and experimental, but there had to be a short list. So the short list, from one, please, is... Can I milk this? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> oh, speaking of milk, rainbow milk. Charge by Andrina Vianna. Forced out by Kevin Maxwell. A dutiful, a dutiful boy, Mossin Zaidi. Chuggy Bain, Douglas Stewart. And Swimming in the Dark by Thomas Hedrowski. Massive congratulations. shortlist for the Polari Book Prize, which is awarded annually to a non-debut book which explores the LGBTQ plus experience. Now in its third year, the prize is kindly sponsored by DHH Regency. I was extremely honoured to win the prize last year um, and it was um, also a gigantic honour to judge the prize this year, but really hard it turns out judging a book prize, um, especially when there are so many brilliant, brilliant diverse books. Um, from literary biographies to commercial bestsellers to YA novels to poetry. Um, there are lots of wonderful books that didn't make the long list, and deciding the shortest was even harder than that. Um, but uh, I'm very excited to tell you what they are after I have reminded you what the long list was. So the 12 long listed books are, I'm going to cheer after each one again Drag Man by Stephen Appleby, The Air Year by Caroline Bird, The Intoxicating Mr. Lavelle by Neil Blackmore. Pull of the Stars by Emma Donaghy. What Girls Do in the Dark by Rosie Garland. Park by John R. Gordon. Beneath the Streets by Adam McQueen. The Ministry of Guidance by Golden Schnur. No Modernism Without Lesbians by Diana Solani. On Connection by Kay Tempest. Love and Other Thought Experiments by Sophie Ward. The Liars Dictionary by Ellie Williams. Read all of them, they're all brilliant. Um, but here are the shortlisted books. Drag Man by Stephen Appleby. The Air Year by Caroline Bird. The Intoxicating Miss Lavelle by Neil Blackmore. What Girls Do in the Dark by Rosie Garland. The Ministry of Guidance by Woo! And No Modernism Without Lesbians by Diana Sohana. Congratulations to all the shortlisted writers and to all the winners.
That night in heaven, we also had uh, performances from two of the judges, uh, Keith Jarrett, who read some poetry, and Kate Davis, heavily pregnant, who did one of the uh, dildo shopping scenes from In at the Deep End, uh, starting off the night as it w- would continue to go on. So not dwelling too much about the judges, let's get to who's actually on the shortlist. Well, there's six books on each shortlist, and they're very, very diverse books. Uh, I think one of the great things the last couple of years with the prize is that it's gone from being a situation where we where we're basically overwhelmed with books by and about white gay men, and now we have far more diverse range of books um, from different people from different eth- ethnic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, gender identities. Um, it's, it's become much, much more diverse than it, than it was at the beginning. I mean, it is, we, are, we are talking 11 years into the prize now, so obviously the prize, there's, there's more awareness of the prize, but I think we can only ever reflect what's being published. We can't, we can't create the books, we can only you know, recognise the books that are already there. So I do think something has, has been happening in, in the publishing world, um, and it's interesting that although, the, we've, although we've had... A, a rise in submissions from the bigger how bigger publishing houses um the overall rise in the number of submissions has largely come from independence this last year and that's where that's where you're hearing the more unusual voices that, that they, they you know we, we know publishing is quite risk averse so you know if you if you if you've got a book that's that's lgbtq plus and on top of that it's also from a different cultural or ethnic um writer background writer then there are more reasons to be cautious around it because they're worried it's going to be too niche and i understand I, I do understand where those fears come from but of course the reality is is that you know readers are much much more open to things than people give them credit for you know and, and the idea that that a, a reader who isn't black or isn't gay is going to be off put off reading a book by someone who is one of or one or both of those things is very naive the reality is, is that we, as readers, we're quite happy to go on journeys, you know. And to, well, like, like you were saying about Gornouche's book, you know, to, to read stories about people that you, you wouldn't know that those stories otherwise. Why would you only want to read books about people just like you? I mean, I don't understand that mentality at all. 